Good morning, friends. Very nice to be with all of you today. Hey, um, one more thing to add to the stuff as we get going here. Uh, so our nominating team is going to be meeting over the next few weeks, and I wanted to uh, invite you to participate in that just through your input. Um, so our, uh, our vision team uh, is comprised of our pastors and then folks from the church who the congregation is recognizes those who have gifts of wisdom and leadership. And if you, uh, if there's somebody you want to put their name in the hat for that, somebody in whom you are experiencing gifts of wisdom and leadership, uh, you can forward those names to me or Debbie Herrera, who is the vice chair of our vision team. And uh, we'll, we'll be very happy to receive those from you. So uh, our series that we are in is, is American Idols. Right? Every culture is inclined towards making idolatries of certain things. Right? And typically, we find that idols are they're a good thing that's simply been made into an ultimate thing. And uh, so we're, we're just asking the question, what are some of those things for us? And it being an election year and whatnot, it's like, man, we can't not have politics on the list of things that can become idolatrous to us. I hope that's not shocking to anybody, that sometimes our politics can grow to such a place that they take over in some ways that are unhealthy. So um, let, me, let me tell you a, a story about a Christian nation. Stop me if this one sounds familiar. Uh, but uh, I want to tell you about a country who for several hundred years had a rich history of Christianity, uh, prided itself on being guided by Christian principles uh, in terms of lawmaking, uh, the, the Bible influenced a lot of the laws that were on the books. Uh, this country boasted more Christian citizens than anywhere else in the world. It was really sort of the epicenter of the Christian world. Sent missionaries everywhere. Public expressions of Christian faith were pretty common in terms of public life uh, if you were a part of this country. And in fact, it was pretty difficult to be a leader in this country if you were not recognized as a Christian. Uh, the, um, uh, the self kind of identity of the people too, they really sort of saw themselves as a continuation of the people of God from Old Testament times into the present and others around the world saw them that way too. When the world thought about Christians, they would think about this place. Then, uh, there are a series of cultural challenges, some uh, also some national tragedies, and as these things occurred over time, it began to rock this nation's identity and the way that they saw themselves. And while they had seen themselves pretty much as a Christian nation, that began to change in some ways. And both the church and the nation were, were really hit very hard by the different changes and tragedies that were going on. It led to a bit of a, a crisis of identity. Now, in the midst of that, one of the nation's most famous pastors wrote a book to help them sort through this. And this is kind of the summary of what this person wrote. He said, our national identity has become so intertwined with our Christian identity that sometimes we can't tell the two apart anymore. That we sometimes conflate the two of these such that our national values, things like self-love and financial prosperity and power and pride, start to be seen as Christian values. Uh, and biblical values like love for others and financial generosity and gentleness and humility started to look more and more foreign uh, to the citizenry there. 
Now, the nation in question is Rome, and the year is 410 AD. Uh, the pastor who led the country through this crisis was named St. Augustine of Hippo, and the book that he wrote to do this was called The City of God. This is its central thesis, and I think it's, it's a very timely one for us today. He said, in essence, that on this side of heaven, believers always simultaneously live in two cities. It's never one or the other. He says, we always live in the city of man, and we always live in the city of God. The two in his language are always entangled. There's always a certain amount of overlap between these. And good overlap, he would say there's times where in, in our nation and in our values and our laws and all of it, there's times when we see God's righteousness and we see God's beauty here in the city of man. But then he would quickly remind us that just because you see that, it does not make this our home. Our home is always the city of God and our eyes have to be there. And when these two kingdoms conflict, we have to choose the city of God over the city of man. Now in our politics, friends, this is where we run the danger of our politics becoming an idol. When the earthly city and the heavenly city become conflated, or when the earthly city begins to look more appealing than the heavenly city, and the values of this kingdom get, get suddenly transposed into our own. Or, as, as maybe we'll, we'll kind of put it for the sake of, of this teaching today, uh, our politics become an idol when we begin to trust Caesar more than Jesus as the answer to our personal and our societal problems. Now, Augustine, basically what he's describing, it's a term we've all heard, but essentially he's describing a certain brand of Christian nationalism. I know that for us, that's a term that we mostly associate with the right in this country, but I would assert that it's present on the left too. It's just a matter of which direction we're looking. For those on the right, typically Christian nationalism takes the form of looking backwards and saying, okay, what our country has been is what we need to be moving towards because that's the godly thing. And those on the Christian left tend to look forward and say, well, what we dream that we could become, that's the Christian nation that we need to become. But in either case, whether we're coming from the right or we're coming from the left, our politics run the risk of becoming an idol when we begin to conflate this idea of the city of God and city of man, and or when the city of God begins to take or city of man takes precedence over the city of God. Now, um, we've been mentioning throughout this series, almost always, uh, our idols are things that are good that are made ultimate. Right? It's rare that we start with something bad and we make an idol out of that. There's, there's no temptation in that. It's usually when we see something good. And the scriptures are very clear on this. The government is good. It is a gift from God, uh, given to us to keep order in a sinful world, to keep things from, from spiraling out of control. Uh, and our politics would be an accessory to that. But when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, we end up trusting Caesar more than Jesus to fix our problems. Then we start to run into trouble. And by the way, this, this would apply uh, whether you're a big government person or a small government person. Either way, we can make governance into an idol, right? If you're on the left, typically 
More government is seen as the solution. If you're on the right, typically less government is seen as the solution. Less or more. When government starts to be the solution more so than Jesus, we run the risk of it becoming an idol. So here's, here's a couple what-ifs I want to throw out for us. And just kind of take this in, right? How do I know if this is a problem for me? How do I know if I'm running the risk of my politics becoming an idol in my life? And at, at the risk of this sounding like, you know, kind of a you might be a redneck if, let me give some ifs. And these, these are some behaviors that I think we see pretty commonly among Christians and more broadly and in our church. So here's a couple. If I see my side winning as so important that it justifies me treating people on the other side with meanness or contempt, then my politics might be becoming an idol. Number two, if I find myself trying to bend the Bible's teaching to fit my party's position, rather than acknowledging that some of my party's positions are sinful, then my politics may be becoming an idol. Three, if I find myself growing hostile, indifferent, unfair, or stereotyping those on the other side, then my politics might be becoming an idol. Four, if I have no trouble spotting the other party's or other person's flaws but can't seem to spot those of my own party or person, then perhaps my politics are becoming an idol. Five, if rather than acknowledging when my person or party is in sin, I deny it or I make excuses for them, then perhaps my politics are becoming idolatrous. Six, if I care so much about my peers seeing me as being and you've got to fill in the blank for yourself here, seeing you as maybe being patriotic, or maybe as being a good progressive, or maybe as being a good American, or maybe as being a caring person. If you see uh, the way that you are seen by your peers uh, such that you would hold beliefs or engage in behavior that you know to be wrong, your politics may be becoming an idol. And that that last one is especially tough, because we've, we've talked about, too, how, how just as in the ancient world, our idols today, they have their own priests, and they have their own temples, and they have their own rituals. Well, if, if you don't hold to all that your idol, that your side of the aisle holds to, there's a good chance you're going to get kicked out of the temple. We are big on excommunic excommunication these days when it comes to our politics. We call it canceling. But it makes it hard to hold this sort of, of uh, posture. One more I'll throw out. There's not a slide for this, but it's something I read recently from um, a guy named Andy Stanley. Uh, are you more concerned, for parents, are you more concerned about your kids' political views or their faith? Now, we all know the right answer. But if that question causes you discomfort, sit with that. What's that discomfort telling you? Is it possible that uh, those political views are holding too strong of a place? Uh, it's a sad truth, but I think it's a reality that many Christians hold their political views more dogmatically than they hold actual dogma. Right? That you might be squishy about this or that teaching of Jesus, but man, you sure know what you think about tax cuts, right? Sometimes we get so dogmatic about our politics. 
Now here's the thing. So the world of Jesus' day was no less politically charged than ours. How did Jesus navigate this without the political becoming an idol for him? What can we learn from him as our model and our teacher and our Lord in this area? Uh, here's where we're going to go. So I, I want us to look today at one characteristic of Jesus that I think is, is very timely for us, very helpful in our particular political climate. And then we'll look at two spiritual practices uh, to help us uh, be shaped more into Christ's image in this particular area. So let's pray, and let's look at the scriptures. Heavenly Father, uh, we confess to you this is such a difficult area for us. And more so, as our country becomes more polarized, it's so easy for us in your church to be more polarized too. But God, we continue to pray in this series that you would expose the idols of our hearts. God, that you would make us aware of those places where we are making allegiances with the world when we should be making those with you. And God, as it comes to how we navigate this tricky area, we pray for the guidance of your Holy Spirit. We pray that we would receive clarity from you through your word. And we pray that you would give us courage to live and act and obey as that please you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, friends. So here's what I want us to note in the life and practice of Jesus today. Jesus took a stand, but he didn't align with a side. Let me say that again. Jesus took a stand, but he didn't align with a side. Now, the world of Jesus' day... Was, was very politically charged, as ours is. There were at least four major parties, you could call them. Uh, not a democracy, but they still had very clear factions with very clear approaches to how you approached societal change. And they were all very passionate about the issues of the day, especially that of Roman occupation. This was the big one. Uh, Israel in that time was a people who were living uh, under the regime of a foreign army. They were oppressed and they were abused, and everyone held this as a central concern, although they had different approaches to how to deal with it. And there's an interesting dynamic in Jesus that all the different parties uh, sought his influence, sought his approval, his blessing. He had the ear of many of the people, and so subsequently those in leadership, whatever their political persuasion might be, they... Uh, we're always trying to get Jesus to align with them. Uh, he doesn't. What we do see him do, though, is we do see him bringing the word of God to bear as the arbiter of whatever each group brings to him. And if you've read the Gospels very much, you've seen this. Jesus had no problem taking a stand on whatever the issue was. So um, I want to give you just a taste of this. And as we read through these kind of notes, the different parties, how Jesus responds. So here's the sampling. So these passages are all from Matthew 21 and 22. I'm going to skip huge sections of it, but if you want to go and read it later, this is all Matthew 21 and 22. It starts with this. It says, Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, 
And then he goes into this wonderful reply. I'm not going to give it to you. That's not the point of what we're doing today. But read the reply. It's great. But he, he says to party one, uh, in this case the chief priests and the elders, primarily made of Sadducees, he gives them his answer. Now, you read down to the next story in these sections. And what do we read? Then the Pharisees, okay, this is a new party. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap Jesus in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, another party. So they're tag teaming right here. Pharisees and Herodians aren't normally aligned, but common concern over Jesus can sometimes bring people together. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, now, so they're, they're, again, we're skipping the answer, but they're kind of buttering up Jesus, you know, hey, we think you're great, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And Jesus gives this, this answer, which you might be familiar with, where Jesus says to him, in essence, hey, why don't you just give to Caesar what's Caesar and to God what's God's? Massive political implications in that statement. But he doesn't jump on with their agenda. He just answers them, taking them back to Genesis. People are made in the image of God. You should treat them a certain way because of that. Next one, same passage. It says that same day, the Sadducees, yet another party, the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him with a question. They give the question. And then Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Have you not read what God said to you? And he takes them back to the scriptures. Next episode. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they come back. The Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied. And he quotes to them two Old Testament passages, directing them to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love their neighbor as themselves. And on it goes. Right? But you kind of get the picture, kind of get a, a feel for how this goes. You've got these different competing groups, and they're all coming to Jesus, and they all want, in essence, the same thing from him. Jesus, tell these crowds that our side is right. Tell these crowds that we are the ones that the people should be following. And to all of them, Jesus speaks very clearly on whatever the issue is that they are bringing. But he doesn't join their side. He doesn't throw in, he doesn't endorse their entire cause. In fact, and it gets very frustrating for these different groups as this kind of goes on, and you see it in other places in the Gospels as well. Right? They come to him with this thing, and Jesus will be like, no, that's not right. You know, Pharisees come to him. We looked at, was it last week? We looked at the question of marriage that the Pharisees brought, and Jesus is like, nope, you got that wrong, and he takes them to the scriptures on that. And so the Sadducees, they're like, yes, we've got Jesus, huge influence in this, and they come to him, and they're like, hey, Jesus, resurrection, and Jesus is like, nope, you guys are wrong, and he takes them to the scriptures, and on and on it goes like this until uh, the sides are all so, uh, they're so frustrated that they, they come together and plot together to have Jesus crucified. Now the questions that they are asking, right, we might ask, are these political questions or are these spiritual 
questions? And the answer to that is yes. Uh, they're very much both. And actually, I, I would suggest if you really stop and think about it, so many of our political questions are spiritual questions too. The overlap between those is actually pretty big. Uh, but to, to kind, of, kind of illustrate this, <clears throat> um, so many, many of these questions that Jesus has posed to them have a direct callback to the central issue of their day, that issue of Roman occupation. And the four major parties each had an approach to this. So hang with me on this. this uh, we're going to bring this back to our neighborhood. But this is the basic approach. So for the Pharisees, if we were to give them a slogan, their solution to bringing societal change was this. It's righteous laws and living will bring about the kingdom of God. This was the position of the Pharisees. If we just follow God's laws better, then our nation's wounds are going to be healed. And this is why, incidentally, so many of the interactions you see with Jesus and the Pharisees, the issue has to do with, with rule keeping, right? Why don't your disciples keep the Sabbath the right way? Why don't your disciples wash their hands? Why are you healing people on the Sabbath, right? And these are, are questions. They're, they're not just being legalists. They are being legalists. But it's not legalism for the sake of legalism. They see this as an accidental threat. If our fellow countrymen don't get their act together and start acting godly, we're going to lose our nation. So that's the Pharisees. That's their approach. Now the Sadducees, the next group, if we're going to give them a slogan, it would be go along to get along. Right? The Sadducees were the pragmatists of the day. They'd say, hey, listen, Pharisees, we agree with you guys on a lot, but you've got to play the game. The Romans have the power, we don't have the power, so we've we got to find some ways to make this work. Incremental change, that's all we need. Slow, incremental change. And so they would ally themselves with the Romans quite a bit, even though they didn't like the Romans either. But they'd be like, okay, Rome, you need tax collectors? We'll recruit you some. No problem. Oh, Rome, you need people to act in some kind of junior level government positions and do whatever you tell them to do? We'll find you some. Right? And the Pharisees, as you can imagine, the Pharisees hated them. They were like, you guys are the biggest sellouts in the world. And the Sadducees, so the Pharisees, are like, you guys are idiots. You don't know how the real world works. This is what you have to do if we're going to keep our nation. Third group are the Zealots. And the Zealots would look at both the Pharisees and the Sadducees and say, you guys are terribly weak. You're doing this all wrong. Incremental change is not the way to go. What we need is massive upheaval. They were the activists of the day, organizing people around a cause, resisting Rome in whatever ways that they could, uh, in the hopes that God would come alongside and overthrow the Romans uh, eventually. Um, their attempts to bend the Romans to their will were largely unsuccessful. Rome was not a liberal democracy. There is no protection of free speech or of assembly, and so it didn't go well. So the zealots pretty quickly became the party of violence. And for them, the failure to be able to organize peacefully led to a violent approach. And their slogan, we could say, is the ends justify the means. We know in our hearts that what we're doing is wrong. But it's for the right purpose, so we're going to do it anyway. Fourth party, the Essenes. The Essenes slogan could be, let's just get off the grid. 
their thing was, it's a lost cause, man. The country is too far gone. We are not bringing it back. We can't participate in society without being corrupted by all its evils, so we are out. So they would, would form these communities in the desert, move out in the middle of nowhere, and, uh, and just, just separate and say, okay, we're done. So those are the four major groups in Jesus' day. See any parallels, perchance, to some of the ways that we approach societal change for us today? Try this on for size, see what you think. So some believers, some believers, they take a similar approach to the Pharisees. If we have more righteous laws, if we have more righteous people, then perhaps God will hear our cries and he will heal our land. Right, if you're on the right, uh, this might mean more legislation around abortion or gay marriage. If you're on the left, this might mean expanding benefits for the poor or immigrants or racial equity. But in either case, it's this idea of advocating for public righteousness. This is the thing that we need if we're going to see God's kingdom come on earth. Other believers take a similar approach to the Sadducees. Right? And they say, hey, you got to be realistic. Yeah, the system is gross, but it's the system that we have. You got to work within that system. You got to play the game. You might have to make some compromises, but let's do what we can. And granted, in a democracy, this kind of approach makes, makes a lot more sense than maybe it does in a different form of government. Uh, but the weakness here, as you can imagine, is that sometimes the compromises that you end up making can get pretty steep and compromise your Christian convictions or your Christian witness. Example of this uh, might be Democrats who felt they needed to defend Bill Clinton or Republicans who felt that they needed to defend Trump in spite of mounds of evidence that the men were philanderers and objectified and used women for their own sexual gratification. And, uh, and for those who are old enough to witness this both in the 90s and in the present, there's a lot of, lot of harumphing about how much character matters for our political officials right up until the minute that it became clear that a lot of harumphing about that could mean the other side takes power. And because we all know the other side taking power would be worse, we're just going to get quiet. Or worse, make excuses for those that we want to stay, stay in power. This is the quandary of the Sadducee. This is the issue that you run into when that's the approach of going along to get along. Uh, some believers, different group yet, take a similar approach to the zealots. The time for incremental change is past. The other side poses an incremental, an existential threat, rather. Therefore, we need to do what we need to do. And if some of that isn't okay, well, maybe that's okay. Because the idea is that the ends will be justified by the means. So whether we're talking about uh, mean posts on Facebook, uh, one end of the spectrum all the way up to occupying Portland or storming the Capitol on January 6th. This approach to politics is still alive and well. And I dare say becoming easier for us as Christians to say, well, this is so important. 
I can temporarily suspend good Christian behavior because the ends justify it and call for it. Finally, some believers take a similar approach to the Essenes. You know, their thing was to get off the grid. Sometimes folks do that literally. We don't have a ton of that in America, but you know, it happens. You can move to Idaho and join a commune. It is a thing. Um, but often this just takes the form of checking out. I'm saying, you know, I just, I don't think I'm gonna touch the whole thing. Just, I'm becoming a non-political part of the political system. Or maybe a little more spiritualized, uh, sometimes we'll say things like, well, the work of the church is just to get people saved. We don't need to think about these different societal ills. But these, I would say, are different ways of going off of the grid. Now, you with me still? Any of this feel roughly familiar? I hope so. Uh, here's the thing. Now, whichever approach we most resonate with, if one or more of those categories, you're like, yeah, that's kind of the way that I come at this. What, whatever the approach is, we tend to look at those around us and say to them, I need you to join me here. Come over here with me the way I'm doing it and take a stand. Though often what we actually mean by that is come over here and take my side because my side is the right side. You see that, right? So take a stand here with me in this way. And we easily conflate these. Taking a stand and taking a side are not always the same thing. Jesus always took a stand, but he didn't align himself with a particular side. And why not? Why didn't Jesus align himself? Uh, two reasons, and one I, I think you see in this group of texts we're looking at. One is that no side had all the truth. And Jesus says as much, right? He doesn't condemn any of the sides outright. He doesn't say that any group in his day, you guys are wrong about everything. He also doesn't say to them, you guys are right about everything. I'm with you guys. I'm now a Pharisee. I'm now a Sadducee. I'm now a Zealot. He doesn't do that. Now he brings the word of God to bear on whatever the particular issue is, and he stands there. But he doesn't align himself fully with that group and with everything that's in their agenda. No side had all the truth. If they did, then he wouldn't have something to correct the various sides about. And I, I hope you agree with me here, friends, that that neither of our parties has all of the truth. There are good and righteous causes and people on the left. There are good and righteous causes on the right. We need to be able to discern those. And we need to be able to name those. And we need to be able to stand on those without necessarily being beholden to everything that comes with that particular side's agenda. Two examples of this I'm loving right now. Uh, one from sort of the center left, the other from the center right, but uh, on the left side of things, there's a fellow named Justin Gaboni, and he leads an organization out of Chicago called the AND Campaign. And their slogan, in the name of a book he wrote, commend the book to you, is Compassion and Conviction. And he's speaking primarily to those on the left, and he's saying to them, look, 
Keep being a person of compassion, but also be a person of conviction. Stand for biblical principles at the same time. He says, it, this doesn't have to be an either-or choice. Make it an and. And this is their, their whole deal. Um, and so, you know, for instance, they, uh, you know, by and large, when they look at what society needs, they think the left has the better prescription for that. And they're on board with it. But at the same time, they, they take a historic biblical view of abortion and of human sexuality. And they're unapologetic about it. So we are going to lead in the way we see as most compassionate, but also as most in line with the scriptures. The other example that I'm, I'm enjoying these days is a fellow named Andy Stanley. And you may have heard of him. He leads a ginormous church out of Atlanta. Uh, he's got a book called Not In It to Win It, where he talks a bit about this. But he is writing from deep, deep red country and out of a, a very red church. And uh, during the pandemic, they lost a ton of people from that church because they chose to close worship services and go online during the height of the pandemic uh, when a lot of the people in their, their area and in their church were wanting the churches to stay open. So he's speaking to those who are more right-leaning in their politics and he calls out Christian nationalism and he promotes racial reconciliation and he says that the rights policies have to better account for the poor, uh, all of this. But it's, it's a similar it's a similar deal in terms of compassion and conviction of saying, look, I think, this him speaking, I think the right is right, here, here, and here. And here they're horribly wrong. And we've got to name that. Right? It's taking a stand without aligning with a particular side. Uh, back to Justin Gaboni. Here's a, a quote from him. He says, at certain times and on certain issues, Christian principles compel us to defy both political conservatism and political progressivism. When it comes to political ideology, to be conservative or progressive at all times and on every issue is not only intellectually lazy and easily manipulated, but it's also unfaithful. On the right, theological conservatism and ideological conservatism aren't always the same. And on the left, the far left's conception of social justice isn't always consistent with the biblical understanding of social justice. Right? Stand, he's saying in essence, stand where the scriptures stand. And don't align in those places where it makes you out of line with the scriptures. Uh, you know, there's, I think there's another reason too. Uh, why Jesus uh, went at this the way that he did, uh, taking a stand but not aligning with the side. Uh, and it comes from the Gospel of John where he talks about him coming for all people, right? In fact, all the scriptures talk about this cover to cover, that God has come for all people. And if you think about what would have it looked like for Jesus had he aligned with one side or the other in his day? What would that have meant, uh, not just for the issues of, of truth that we mentioned, but also in terms of reaching people? Jesus says at one point, he says, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to me. All people. And friends, the reality is, once you declare a side, and you're in a 50-50 split like our country is, once you declare a side, you alienate half the people. 
And when we think about our posture as Christians, that isn't something that we want. We're called to bring the gospel to all nations. If we are too closely aligned with the side, we won't be able to bring it to even half of our own nation. There's something deeply alienating about that. And friends, Jesus loves everybody in the South Bay. We don't want to communicate that we as a church love some people more than others. That we're a church where you're going to feel comfortable and you're going to belong if this is your political persuasion, but not this, and vice versa. Jesus said, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. They're not going to know we're disciples by how we vote or whether we make our country great or whether we move America forward or whether we're on the right side of history. They're going to know that we are Jesus' disciples by the way that we love one another. And we need to think deeply about that, friends, because our country is doing a terrible job loving one another across political lines. If the church of Jesus cannot do better, woe to us. We are failing in our calling. Right? Jesus calls us to love our enemies. If we can't even love our political opponents, man, we're getting it wrong. Now, before we go to practices, just the question maybe, maybe somebody's asking this question. You know, can I even belong to a political party? Should I belong to a political party? You know, is that what I'm saying here? Um, I don't think it's, it's sinful per se to belong to a political party, but I think that question is actually a really good question to ask. Can you belong to a political party and not sin? It's possible the answer is no. It's possible that once you put on that jersey, everything gets blurry and you're not able to be kind on the other side, and you're not able to discern the good from the bad within that. It's, ask the question for real. Can I be part of a political party and yet not align with that side when that side looks more like the city of man instead of the city of God? But if you do, if you do, if you feel like, yeah, this is a great thing for me to do, then do it. But do so not as an advocate for the party, but as an advocate for Jesus. Do it as somebody who is willing to clearly and courageously say yes to what Scripture affirms and no to what Scripture denies. And if they kick you out of the idol's temple because you don't accept the whole thing, so be it. It's what they did to Jesus as well. But there is a way, friends, and Jesus shows us the way to take a stand without aligning with a side. Uh, let's talk about our practices, can we? So um, I, I want to give us two today, two spiritual disciplines. Of, if this is an area where we are wanting to grow and wanting Jesus to have some space in our lives where he can realign these things the way that they should be aligned. Two practices that I would suggest for us today. One is, eat with those who think differently. Eat, as in food. Have food with people who don't see everything the way that you do. Right? For some, I see smiles. This sounds delightful. 
And for others, maybe it sounds like torture. <laughs> um, but uh, break bread with those whose views are different. Here's a fascinating poll. came out a week before last, and I just thought, man, this is terrific. So Axios Ipsos poll, and it was about election fraud. And it's, they're polling people based on the upcoming election. And, and the question was, if your party loses seats come November, then what's the likelihood that the other side cheated? Right? Quite a question. What's the likelihood that the other side cheated? 39% of Republicans said yes to that. There's a good chance they cheated. 25% of Democrats said yes. There's a good chance the other side cheated. Now, that stat in and of itself is very frightening in terms of implications for us as a country and trusting elections. And I pray we make some reforms in that area that make both sides feel a bit more secure about the way our elections are happening. But here's the piece. This is the thing in this poll that just grabbed my attention. So there was one factor that reduced this number for people, that reduced the likelihood that you would think the other side cheated if your side lost in the election. You know what that thing was? If you had shared a meal with someone of the other political party in the last month, it dramatically decreased your view that the other side was cheating in the election. And here's what gets me in this. This factor doesn't have anything to do with voting machines, with matching signatures, with gerrymandering districts, uh, none of that. There's no voter ID laws in this, nothing. It has nothing to do with the actual issue. But the simple act of breaking bread with someone from the other side within the last month decreased the skepticism that you held about the other side. There is something so powerful about intentionally listening to those who see the world differently than we do. And here's a beautiful thing too. You know, in the New Testament, they actually had a structure for this where people could regularly come together and break bread and be with people unlike themselves and learn from one another and grow together towards God. It's called the church. The intent from the very first day is that the church would bring together people who are unlike each other in every way and it would make them into family. Friends, if you want to grow in Christ-likeness in your, your approach to politics, if you want to develop a posture that looks more like Jesus, there's a great practice for us. Make it a habit of breaking bread with people who think differently than you do. That's the first one. Practice number two is this. Practice number two is apply the love question. Here's the question. What can I do or say that would bring the most good to the other person? This is a, a summary I was given years and years ago, and it hangs above my desk at home. A summary of 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. What would it look like for me to do or say whatever brings the most good to the other person. Uh, I think this has some great bearing for us in our politics because politics is about what? It's about winning, right? Politics is about the accumulation of power. I need my side to win because if I don't, 
things will not go well for society. And sometimes that can really blind us to this question of love. Am I loving the person in front of me? What can I do or say that brings the most good to the other person? Right? And Jesus speaks of this in Mark 10 when he says, when the world gains power, they lord it over others. They use it to coerce. But he says, for you, for my disciples, when you gain power, you use that to serve one another in love. How are we able to serve one another in love? I know someone saying, I vote out of love. I vote for the good of my neighbor. And man, I hope that is true of every person in this room. I hope that we never cast a vote without thinking, is this going to do the most good for the most amount of people? Even if we have different opinions on which vote is going to do that, that's not the point. I want us to ask that question. But don't stop asking at that point. We need to keep on asking after that, okay, when I am in conversation with someone, what do I think will bring the most good for that person? When I'm about to post something online, what is going to bring the most good to people who read this? When I am interacting with somebody who holds a different view than I do, what is going to bring the most good? This is the love question. And friends, Jesus always calls us back to this. This is how they will know that you are my disciples, by the way that we love one another. Let's pray together.